Wow. Where did you come from? My goodness. Woo! Yeah. There you are in force. Good to see you. Wow, can you believe it? it has been six months since we have gathered like this for worship? And needless to say, there's a lot of excitement in this place. I want to give a huge shout out to our other campuses. Saratoga, we're so glad you're with us today. Thank you for gathering and coming together for worship. Half Moon, same thing. Everybody knows I think we are one church just meeting at multiple locations. And Latham, I want to give a shout out to you as well. Now, for the hundreds and hundreds of people who are joining us online right now, we are so glad you are with us in worship online. I realize that some of you, maybe for whatever reasons, you don't feel it's safe to come back yet, and maybe you have some medical conditions or all kinds of mitigating circumstances We hope you can join us soon, but we know that you need to use your best discretion and wisdom on that. We're so glad you're with us online. Well, we kicked off a series last week called Big Questions About Life, and we talked about does life have a purpose? And as we saw, it has an incredible purpose, particularly when we know how God has made us and what he's made us for. But today, we want to ask a different question in this series. Is there a God? Now, I want to tell you, more implications for your life flow from your answer to that question than any other question you could ask or answer. If you get the answer to that question wrong, is there a God? You may find yourself trying to build a life on a faulty foundation, lacking a sense of who you are, why you were made, where you're going, what life is about, how you ought to think and live. But if we get the answer right to that question, we at least have a chance to build life on a solid foundation. So is there a God? Well, if you're one of those people who believe the Bible, that the Bible is actually God-breathed, where God has revealed certain things to us accurately in Scripture, then your answer to that question is crystal clear. I mean, all you got to do is crack open the Bible to the very first page, and here's what you read in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So there it is. And as you read on in that chapter, it's all about God. In fact, 32 times in that one chapter alone, the word God is used. So if you believe the Bible, then you know that God exists. But you also, as you read there, figure out some things about God. First of all, Genesis 1 tells us that he is pre-existent. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In other words, God existed before space and time. Often little children will ask, well, who made God? And that's a great question. 
And the answer is, no one made God. God is the only being in the universe that is completely independent, does not need anyone, anything else for his existence. He is pre-existent. But secondly, as you read here, you realize that God is not only pre-existent, he's personal. You say, now wait a minute, how do you know that? Well, it's because of all these acts that are attributed to God. For instance, Genesis 1-3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And over and over and over again, you read things like this in Scripture, God said, God saw, God called. These are all personal activities that are attributed to God. But third, as you read the Bible, if you believe the Bible, you realize that God is also powerful. For instance, I move on down to verse 11 in Genesis 1, and it says, Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, and wow, did it ever produce. Verse 20, And God said, Let the water teem with living creatures, and wow, the water just teemed with all this different kind of life and creatures. Verse 24, and God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, and it happened just as God commanded and declared. So what are we saying? If you're a person, and I happen to be one of those people, who believes that God has communicated to us in a very special way in the book called the Bible, then you've got your answer to this question right out of the gate. Not only is there a God, but this God is preexistent, this God is personal, and this God is obviously very, very powerful. But what if you don't believe the Bible? Let's suppose we just want to kind of close our Bibles up today and ask that same question. Is there any evidence that God exists? Now, I don't want you to miss next week because we're going to dive into that with both feet. We're going to look at some of the classic arguments for the existence of God. I think you're not only going to learn a lot, we're going to learn a lot together but I think you're gonna actually enjoy it. I think you're gonna love to see some of these classic arguments for God's existence. But today, we need to do something else first. We need to lay a little bit of foundation, I think, before we go there. We need to talk about this whole question of how do we know certain things. I wonder if you have conversations ever about God. Do you ever have talks with people about God? Do people ever ask you questions about God? Boy, I certainly do. And one of the questions that I have been asked over and over again throughout many years of ministry is, preacher, can you prove God to me? Now, sometimes that's said with a snarl, like a cynicism, like a dare, if you will. And sometimes people ask the question, can you prove God? And they ask it very humbly and I think with a sincere and open mind and heart. 
But whenever I'm asked that question, in fact, one guy said to me once, preacher, if you could just prove God to me, then I will believe. Whenever someone asks that question, I try to get them to understand that's a bad question. Can you prove God? Here's why it's a bad question. Because the most important things in your life you cannot prove. There are some things that can be proved, and there's some things that cannot be proved. But whether they are provable or not has nothing to do, listen to me, has nothing to do with whether they're real. And that is very important to understand. So let's lay some foundation in that regard. This is what philosophers would call a little exploration into epistemology. How do we know the things we know? I think when some people ask that question, can you prove God, what they mean is, can you prove God by scientific method? That's what they're really wondering. In other words, can you kind of reduce God? Can you put him right here in front of me, right before my eyes, maybe in a little test tube or in a little box or a cage somehow so we can kind of probe him a little bit? Oh, look how he jumped when we stuck that in there. Oh, let's add a little water. Oh, look at how God responds when we control him and his environment. Well, obviously, that is ludicrous. That is utterly ridiculous. You can't do that with God. And yet, there's lots of wonderful things we can learn from scientific method. Perhaps you've heard the legend of Isaac Newton and how he started thinking about gravity. This is the way the story goes, at least. Supposedly, Isaac Newton, one of the great fathers of the scientific movement, was sitting under an apple tree one day, and he got bopped on the head with an apple. And he asked a very good question. Instead of asking, what happened? Instead, he asked, what's happening here? In other words, why did that apple fall down and not up or out? And as he explored further, he began to ask, in fact, why do things fall down instead of in other directions. And so he started a series of experiments which led him to formulate the classic theory of gravity. It says that every body attracts every other body with a force that is proportional to the mass of each body. How did he come to that? He came to it through what came to be known as scientific methodology. And of course, he wasn't the only one doing experiments. There were many, many other pioneers in this area. But there are three things that help define scientific method. I know this may feel a little tedious to some of you, but stick with me. I think it's gonna pay off. It's important that we know this. They are observable. They are repeatable and they are measurable. So what did Isaac do? Isaac got different objects that weighed different things and had different sizes, and he would go up on high things on top of buildings, on top of mountains and cliffs and all kinds of places, and he would drop them, and he would observe. He would repeat these experiments over and over again, trying to control the conditions and the variables, and he would measure what he was finding. And that's how he came to formulate through arduous experimentation, this theory of gravity that helped explain why the world behaves the way it does. 
but it has to be observable, repeatable, and measurable, and you can only do that for material things. But what about non-material things? Non-material things are not observable, repeatable, or measurable. So you cannot apply the scientific method of proof to things in history, for instance. You cannot apply it to matters of philosophy. You cannot apply the scientific method to religious knowledge or moral issues. You simply cannot prove those things. Let me try to illustrate. Do you think you can prove Jonathan Edwards? that he lived, that he existed. Now, the historians tell us he did. In fact, if you believe those silly historians, they tell us that Jonathan Edwards was a man who lived between 1703 and 1758. They tell us that he was the valedictorian of his class at Yale, a brilliant man who wrote groundbreaking books that are still read today and appreciated. They will tell you that he pastored in a place called Northampton, Massachusetts, and again in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. But how do we know those historians aren't just duping us? How do we know? How can we prove it? How do we know they're just not making up that there was this guy named Jonathan Edwards? Can we prove his existence? No, we cannot. What we can do is begin to stack up the evidence, though. So we could do a road trip, for instance, and we could go to Northampton, right there on the main street where the old congregational church stood, and you'll see a little plaque out front with Jonathan Edwards' likeness on it. It'll tell a few facts about that and how revival broke out at that church. Or we can travel then to Stockbridge, Massachusetts, and you can go to the library right there in Stockbridge on the main street, And down in the basement of that is a museum, and the curator of that museum, Barbara, will show you a circular desk with multiple sides on it, which was quite an invention in its day, and it pivoted around, it swirled around, and Jonathan Edwards would put his books on that as he would study for 11 hours a day in his study. And if you're really nice to Barbara she may go back in the archives and pull out uh, two or three books and open them up carefully and show you, hey, we've analyzed this. Experts have determined that this note here in the margin of this book, this was in Jonathan's library, and this is a note from his own hand. And what's my point here? When you stack up all this evidence and many more things we could say, like contemporaries of his who wrote about him and spoke about him during his lifetime and left a record of that, when you stack all the evidence, you could say there is overwhelming evidence that Jonathan Edwards actually existed, but you cannot prove it by scientific method. Now, the reason this is so important is because history is vulnerable. How do we believe people who write history? There's all kinds of conspiracy theories that abound. That's why you'll find conspiracy theories today about just about everything. I mean, they're going wild. Some people believe this pandemic is a conspiracy. Some people believe the Holocaust was a conspiracy. 
Last year, in 2019, we celebrated the 50th anniversary of man walking on the moon. But how do we know that happened? My father didn't believe that happened. I'm being serious now. We watched that on our little black and white TV there in Leoma, Tennessee, in the summer of 1969, and my dad said, that is NASA and the U.S. government conspiring together to dupe the American people. And as far as I know, until the day he died in 1980, he did not believe that man was walking on the moon, ever. He said, well, where did they film all that? Oh, that's out in the desert in Arizona or somewhere. Well, what about that suit? Well, well it's just a cute little suit with a helmet. That's, they call it a space suit, but that's just a little thing they made up. You can't, you can't break through. History is always vulnerable. A poll conducted in 2006, five years after 9-11, by Ohio University, you can Google this and look it up yourself, 1,010 people surveyed at random a fair sampling of the American public concluded that 36% of the Americans at the time actually believed that the U.S. government participated in and helped plan 9-11. Think about that, folks. 36% believe it was a conspiracy, at least at that time. So please understand, there are many things that we believe during our lifetime that simply cannot be proved nor disproved by scientific method. So when we ask the question, can you prove God, that's why I say it's a bad question. It's a poor question because you can't apply standards of proof to non-material things. I don't want to beat this to death, but let me give one more example if I ask you, does your spouse love you? And you go, yes, prove it. And you'd start, well, he or she does this and that, and you don't know them, and wow, they are so sacrificial, and man, they've been so loyal, and, and I, oh, that doesn't prove a thing to me. They could be doing those things for all kinds of reasons. That doesn't prove love at all. I hope you get the point. You cannot prove non-material things like love or like the existence of God, or even Jonathan Edwards. But what you can do is stack up the evidence, and based on the evidence, you can declare either I believe or I disbelieve in this person or thing. Hebrews 11.3, the writer says, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. You say, Pastor, is God asking us to believe in him and our belief is just this blind leap in the dark? No, God is asking us to make a leap into the evidence. Into the evidence. And based on this evidence, I'm gonna trust this evidence. It's not a leap in the, into the dark. It's a leap into the evidence. And as you seek God, you find it. So I'm gonna to prove to you today or demonstrate to you today that it is impossible to be an atheist. When I first heard my mentor say that, I thought he was losing his mind. Dr. Lewis Drummond in 1984 said in class, 
it's impossible to be an atheist. I thought he was losing it. But I'm going to explain to you today as I share what he shared that day, how I do believe it is impossible to truly be an atheist. Now, basically, there are three sets of people when it comes to this question today, is there a God? Go with me. First of all, there are theists. The Greek word theos is the word for God. So a theist is one who believes, yes, there is a God. On the opposite extreme would be the atheist. Same word for God, but it's got the A, the alpha in front of it, which means no or without. If you're amoral, you're without morals. If you're atheist, you're without God. You say there is no God. And you need to understand that when someone says there is no God, that's not just some passive thing. Just like being a theist is not a passive thing. An atheist is not saying I believe in nothing. An atheist is in a rather assertive, confident, often dogmatic, declarative way saying there is no God. So you got the theist, you got the atheist, and the third category that everybody fits into, one of these three, is the agnostic. The Greek word gnosis means knowledge, and agnostic is one who says, I don't know. They're without knowledge. It's the person who says, I just don't know if there's a God or not. And broadly speaking, everyone fits into one of those three categories. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand on that one. But if I were to ask how many of you are theists today, I believe that because we're in a church, 90-something percent of you would raise your hand proudly and go, yes, I'm a theist. I am a believer in God. But if I were to ask that same question in a typical university classroom or in your workplace and do a survey there, I think the results might be a bit different. Historically, all across America, down through the years, there's typically been less than 5% of people who declare themselves atheists. There's typically been between 70 and 90-something percent that declare themselves theists, but there is that third category of agnostic that I believe is growing rapidly. Now, let me explain to you why I believe it's impossible to be an atheist. I'm going to draw a circle here, and let's say that this circle, this big old circle here on the chalkboard, represents all there is to know in the universe. Are you with me? This is all of reality. Everything that is, is represented in that circle. Now, here's a strange question for you. How much of all of reality, of all that there is to be known, do you believe one person can know? How much? Albert Einstein is widely recognized that one of the most brilliant people in the 20th century. And Einstein was once asked how much he knew about a particular thing. And he said, I do not know one hundredth part of 1% about anything. Let me say that again. I do not know one hundredth part of 1% about anything. Well, if Einstein doesn't know much. Where does that leave the rest of us, for goodness sakes, right? But let's say, let's say for the sake of this argument that you're a hundred times smarter than Einstein today. 
100 times smarter. If he doesn't know 100th part of 1% about, let's say you're 100 times smarter than him and you know 1% of all there is to be known. So let's actually use a different color chalk and let's represent that with this little blue circle. That represents what you know, okay, of all there is to be known. So what an atheist is saying, for any would-be atheist out there, even though I only know 1% of all there is to be known in the universe, I know there is no God. Now, wait a minute. There's 99% of all of reality that you know nothing, and I mean nothing, about. Are you sure there is no God in all of that? Do you see the audacity of that position? You literally have to know everything to know that there is no God. That's why I say it is impossible to be an atheist. Now, what the agnostic says is, yeah, in my little 1% of knowledge that I have of all of reality, yeah, I, 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 I don't have knowledge of God, but I'm at least humble enough to admit, wow, there is so much that I have no clue about. God could certainly exist in that 99% that I know nothing about. And the theist, watch this now, the theist says, yeah, in my little 1% of knowledge that I have, I can declare I'm a theist because I've experienced God. And I know God, oh, I fully recognize there's so much I don't know, but in my 1% of experience and knowledge, I've experienced God. Now, let me illustrate this a bit further, and I do want to get a show of hands on this. Do you believe in the existence of Judge Pippin? You say, well, that's a strange name. Is he literally a judge, or is that like a first name? Do you believe in the existence of Judge Pippin? Maybe I just made that name up for all you know, but I'm literally going to ask for a show of hands, and I believe you will fall into those three categories on the existence of Judge Pippin. You will fall either into the atheist category and say, I do not believe in Judge Pippin, and if that's the case, I want you to raise your hand high and proud, or you'll fall into an agnostic category and say, I just don't know if there's a Judge Pippin. And some of you are Googling like crazy right now to try to figure out, is Judge Pippin somewhere? And then some of you will fall into the theist category. Are you ready to vote? I'd love to see your hands. We're going to start with that atheist category. How many of you would lay, raise your hand high and proud and say, no, Judge Pippin. Judge Pippin does not exist. Okay, there's two fools right there. Thank you very much. All right, how many of you? High and proud would raise your hand and go, honestly, I just don't have enough knowledge. I don't know if Judge Pippin exists. Thank you very much. That's about 93% of everybody. How many of you would say, I'm a theist on this. I believe Judge Pippin exists. You Googled it, didn't you? You Googled it really fast. Yeah. Okay. There's a few in that code. Thank you. Now, I looked this up on Wednesday Currently on planet Earth, there are 7.8 billion people. 
Now let's suppose, let's go back to this. Let's say that you know 1% of the 7.8 billion people that are on planet Earth today. Now you couldn't because 78 million people, I mean, that's impossible. Can you imagine knowing 78 million people by name and knowing them personally? That's crazy. But let's suppose you could. You know 78 million people. There are still 7 billion, 722 million people that you know nothing about. Can you imagine how audacious it would be to say in 7 billion, 722 million people, although I've never met a Judge Pippin in the 78 million I know, in all of these people, no Judge Pippin. That would be ridiculously boastful to make that claim. You're a megalomaniac or you've lost your mind. You don't know that. I'll be in the theist category with Judge Pippin. I happen to know he exists. We went to college together. We went to the same seminary at the same time. He's married to a wonderful woman named Jackie. They have children and grandchildren. He's involved in Christian ministry. He and I served in a church together in Rockwood, Tennessee. We've eaten dozens of meals together, had hundreds of hours of conversation. I know Judge Pippin because I've experienced a bit of life with him. Now, I don't have to know everybody to know Judge Pippin. I just gotta know Judge Pippin to know Judge Pippin. Listen today, you don't have to know everything to know God, you just have to know God to know God. And you can, watch this, you could know God and still have a whole bunch of things that you just don't know. Now, as we wrap up today, let me change the scenario a bit. Let's suppose that because Judge Pippin does indeed exist, let's suppose that you get a certified letter special delivery to your door, baby, and it tells you that Judge Pippin has bequeathed to you $50 million. Wow. Do you think you'd want to get to know him? Do you think you'd want to kind of look him up on Instagram, Facebook? Do a little search about his life. Maybe find out where he lives. Call him up. Have a face-to-face -face conversation, maybe. Here's my question. Why don't you do that with God? Because God has offered you something far, far better than a measly $50 million. He's offered you forgiveness of all of your sins, a benevolent adoption into his forever family, He's offered to literally change your life and the trajectory of your life from the inside out. He's offered to give you a home in heaven for eternity. Isn't that worth checking out? I'm gonna be brutally honest with you right now, just telling you where I'm coming from. I really, really respect individuals, whoever they are, who are on an honest intellectual journey, who maybe right now would find themselves in kind of an agnostic category. I, I just don't know, but I'm willing to search. I'm willing to look for answers. I'm willing to examine the evidence. I really respect people like that. If that's you, I want you to know, wow, 
I admire what you're doing. Again, just hope you don't mind my brutal honesty. I really have trouble respecting people who say, yeah, in my little sliver of knowledge here in this life, yeah, I know what I know, but I wanna tell you, I'm quite confident there is no God out there, and quite honestly, I don't care what you say, I'm not willing to check it out. It's kinda hard to respect that. It really is. It's kind of hard to respect that. My mind is made up. Don't confuse me with evidence. Not open. Not willing to even explore. How you answer this question today, is there a God, has more implications for your life and future than any other question you will ever ask or answer. It's so important that you get it right. Father, thank you today that we've been able to lay some groundwork. And I'm so excited that this is the beginning of a wonderful exploration for many people. Thank you that we can just go on and on in the coming weeks and examine layer after layer and grow in our confidence about you and who you are and what you've come to do. I pray, oh God, for those today that are teetering right on the edge of belief, would you reveal yourself to them in these days and make yourself known? And I pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen, amen.